0: and a fly ball
1: pretty well hit left field conine towards the corner conine towards the wall leaping and he got it what a grab by jeff conine conine swings in the first pitch high fly ball left field deep it's up up and away a home run for jeff conine some icing on the cake in the eighth inning right field there's a ball hit by jeff conine past the diving eric caros into right field Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame.
0: Outside the box with Jeff Conine, today is Tuesday, August the 10th. It is about a thousand degrees outside. I think we're going to complain about the weather as I open up every episode, but you were just at the field at FIU, Jeff, uh, getting ready for the season. A lot to be excited about, but as far as I'm concerned now, from what you've told me, it's getting ramped up
1: right now for for college baseball already. I know it is. Uh, We got next week, the guys are starting to move into the dorms uh, and we're about two and a half weeks away from first workouts. So you know, with the NCAA rules, you only get eight hours per week uh, the first month of the season. So uh, we got to be creative and they're very they are sticklers about it. So we got to be very creative on how we uh, get them out. And it's only can be small groups here, four or five players at a time for maybe 45 minutes at a time, five days a week. And then first of October is when we ramp up and now we can go 20 hours a week and pretty much full bore practice. <clears throat> what do you think of the rules
0: as as a coach and former player? Is it is it a little bit too, uh, you know, like kind of just keeping the gloves on and kind of babying them a little bit? Or, or do you think it's important to keep those hours in check?
1: Well, it's – I think it's kind of uh, to keep an even playing field as well, because yeah, when you get into the meat of uh, the season, there might be some climates that won't allow even guys to get on the field. So us here in Florida, we can practice year round as many hours as we want to during the course of a day. And um, so I understand there's limits put on for certain reasons, but there are the things that I don't agree with, um, you know, and it's, uh, it's an eye awakening experience for me, just brand new coming into this NCAA experience and and having all these limitations on what we can and can't do what we can and can't say yeah and uh it's just going to take a while to get used to yeah there's there's a lot of interesting rules and the crazy thing is
0: is it's getting better right like it's getting better they've made some major strides the nil stuff of course is like if you told me that would happen five years ago i would have said no way ncaa budges on that but they were given no choice essentially and we're still in a point here where There's a pretty big crackdown. I mean, you can't talk to certain players. And we're going to talk a little bit about that and just how complicated everything is with recruiting. We're also going to talk about top prospects. And we talked about how top prospects translate into the big leagues. But I also want to talk about the top prospects now in a world where media is so prevalent. It's not the same as when you played Maybe everybody knew, you know, who Brian Taylor was or, you know, whoever the first round pick was that year, the, the big name picks, but the prospect rankings and all that stuff, not nearly as important as they are now. So I kind of want to talk about what you think about the effect of that on today's game a little bit. And then we're going to talk managers because I have a theory on managers and I want you to tell me I'm out of my mind. If you don't, then I'm honestly going to be excited because I've always kind of felt uh, this one way about managers, which we'll get to as well, but I want to wrap up the, the NCAA thing real quick because this is going to be an ongoing discussion for us as the year goes on, especially as you're in the season. It's just like this is Jeff's first season coaching uh, what's going on. And right now you've gone on some trips, seen some players um, and, and you're able to watch them reach out to them in certain ways, but not other ways. And I know that's a weird adjustment too, because it's almost forcing you to not be human, right? Like you can't even communicate with these players sometimes and they don't know any better. And they just come up and say, hello, it's a really weird situation.
1: It is weird. And, uh, you know, I had to take an exam before I started uh, coaching or was officially hired uh, to go out and be able to recruit. So the NCAA has this exam you take every single year And it just kind of outlines the laws and bylaws of what recruiting is and who you can and can't speak to. And, um, you know, whenever a kid even now comes up to me and starts talking to me, I'm like, I almost freeze. It's like I've never been nervous talking to a 14 year old kid before. But, you know, at at that point, you're you're not allowed to have face to face interaction with a kid that's an underclassman. Uh, I cannot directly call a kid that's an underclassman. I can call his coach and talk to his coach and then give the coach my number. And then the kid can call me at, at his leisure because that's, totally uh, but different. say I missed the call. I can't call him back. If he texts me, I cannot text him back. If he leaves me something on Twitter, I can't respond on Twitter back. I can like it, but I can't respond. So what if he mails what, you a letter? Are you able to reply
0: with a mailed letter
1: letter? Are like you kidding pigeon? me? Do you think these kids know what snail mail is? All, <laughs> they have no idea how to theoretically write radically. theoretically. No chance. Uh, no, I
0: can't write it back. <laughs> okay, at least they're consistent. I was going to say, like, maybe carrier pigeon, maybe there's a loophole here. Uh, yeah, well, well it's, it's you crazy because to me, I get what they're doing, what they're trying to achieve here, but there's no difference <laughs> of like a lot of these situations. They, there's so many ways around it, too, but it, it's interesting. And, and I understand it again. I think it's a little bit of uh, evening the playing field recruiting wise, too, but. It's a big challenge. So let's get to the Jersey first too, before we start diving into some of the other issues, I'm seeing pinstripes that look purple. Is that a, Oh, it's a Mets Jersey. Okay. It's definitely, I'm going to guess that it's from your two months with the Mets. Is there, is there a chance that it's from that team or. It is not with that team. Okay. Which by the way, this will be a good segue because I want to talk about the Mets and their free fall. Um, and if they might do it again, but uh, Jersey, I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's Luis Castillo Mets version.
1: Oh, good. Good. But he was with the, t- the team when I was there. So ah, it's, it's not, uh, it's not, not that it's not Louis. but since we're talking about prospects and, you know, high draft picks, who do you think this might be in the, like, meaning that he was a great prospect or wasn't. He was the most unlikely prospect to probably ever don a jersey. Mike Piazza. There you go. There it is. That's a good one. He was yeah. chosen in the draft only because it was a favor to his uh, godfather, Tommy Lasorda. So the Los Angeles Dodgers drafted him in the 62nd round, I think, uh, in the 86 or 87 draft. I think it was might have been right before me or, or during the same draft. I'm not sure. And how many rounds? So that's got
0: to be one of the few players to be drafted after you to have that lengthy of a career.
1: Might have been the only one. I'm not sure. But uh, back then, teams could choose until they just didn't have any more prospects to pick. Not prospects, just bodies to, to pick. So I think the year that I was there in 1987, my draft year, the Cleveland Indians had 70 rounds. They drafted oh 70 rounds that year. Um, which I think might be the most ever um but they could keep on picking until they just didn't want to pick any more bodies.
0: Yeah, just I'm um, a 68th round pick. That that's that's hard to get excited about. I know you're still hearing your name called, but I don't even understand how the structure works. So you just bow
1: out of the draft. You're just like I'm done after round yeah, 4. Yeah, just basically you tap out say we got no more picks, we're done. And then I'll go to the next team. The next team's like we're done. And the next team might say, "Yep, we got another one. They put the name in." <laughs> I think I think the, probably the last five rounds, Cleveland was just like the only team going. Yeah, we got one. Yeah, we got one. And then everybody else was gone. So the bonus pool system didn't exist then, right? No. No. Well, how did they how How did they decide what a
0: draftee would be paid? Just open negotiation.
1: Yep. Open negotiations. There were no limits. There were no ceilings. There were no um, real guidelines of, of what to pay anyone, you know, I think you just go on precedent, what a first round pick was paid the year before. And, um, you know, I can't remember the guy, the first guy they ever kind of gave a major league deal to, uh, was like a four year, $10 million deal. And I can't remember the name of the guy that who's one of the first round picks, but, you know, typically a hundred thousand, 200,000 was what a first rounder would, would go for. And the early picks as well, like a top 10 pick would get 150 grand, 200 grand. And that was like, Crazy money back then. That's what a 13th or 14th round
0: pick gets now. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So Piazza, you didn't cross over with him, but one of the funniest things ever uh, is how he was a Marlin for four games, uh, which I think is also just a crazy story in itself. But uh, you mentioned Piazza getting drafted as late as anybody ever has. His power was ridiculous. And something that I didn't really – come to appreciate until I went back and watched some old video recently and was just looking at him like this guy would fit right in today is one of the best power hitters. Like this is, this is a guy that almost fits today's demographic with how much he could just destroy the baseball. And we saw some uh, just balls that I think he has one of the furthest hit home runs ever, I believe at course, right? Like he has some prolific home runs that I almost overlooked because he was so consistent in terms of just the batting average and everything else too.
1: Yeah, you look at, you know, the catching position, um, which obviously offense is a premium at that position, and he kind of redefined what an offensive catcher was when you, in in the modern day, you go back to, I mean, Pudge was was really good offensively, Uh, you go back to Johnny Bench, who was an amazing uh, offensive catcher, but he had, you know, Johnny Bench, obviously, was the, the total deal. I mean, he, he was an amazing defensive catcher as well. But I think when, you know, you look at catchers nowadays, uh, the, such a premium is put on defense that the hitting is just a bonus. Sometimes when you look up the middle at the shortstop, second base, center fielder, those guys, you're looking at premium defenders and offense is a bonus. Uh, but when Piazza came in, uh, he just murdered the baseball. And when you look at his stance, it was so quiet – uh, he was such a ridiculously strong individual. I mean, you, you heard s- stories about like his grip strength and what he was able to close on these, you know, these impossible to close grippers. He would he would close them and uh, it showed in his, his batting stance. He got he had basically no movement, no leg kick. He just whipped that bat through the zone like you wouldn't believe. And, you know, it, it's like one of those uh, guys that you'd watch in batting practice just made a different sound off mm-hmm. the bat. It just. Like a like a Giancarlo Stanton nowadays, you, you listen to his ball come off the bat, and it just sounds different than everyone else's uh, off the bat, and that's what Piazza was.
0: That's what I felt when when we saw Otani at at the All Star event. You know, just taking batting practice before the Derby, I could close my eyes and I could tell you every time Otani was moving into you know his round uh, of of batting practice because it was just totally a different sound with, with what he was able to do relatively quickly through his minor league career, I believe Piazza that that is had like an okay first season and then just exploded in the minor leagues. How do you go from not even being drafted in the first 60 rounds to, and I know you were similar as well, but he was a guy that was already playing offensively. Like you could have, we could say with, with you a little bit of an explanation would be, you didn't even know that you could hit like that. And it, you didn't get a chance to until pro ball with Piazza. He was playing, he was hitting, he was playing the same position. How did he just,
1: how does that happen? Sometimes you just figure it out. You know, you figure out that uh, that mental approach. You figure out um, maybe a new hitch in your swing or, or, or a new stance that that works for you and you get confidence in it. And then when you get confident like that, man, it really took off. And like you said, you know, he played uh, when he first got called up, he had a small number of at-bats. And then his official rookie year was my official rookie year in 1993. And he ended up hitting like 30-plus home runs and 100-plus RBIs, and he never looked back. I mean, that was his kind of his standard year every year with a yeah. high batting average.
0: Yeah, and that's that's the really impressive thing to me. So to and he me, seldom struck out. I don't think he ever struck out more than 100 times in a season. And that's what goes back to the simple swing. So for somebody like Piazza, I don't think he's on any of the uh, prospect rankings, if there were any rankings at the time, uh, when you are considering who those top guys are. But then quickly, uh, just thrusts himself onto the map on the flip side uh, you have prospects that get a lot of credit before they do anything Uh, at least in the minor leagues when you have top prospects and top rated guys you've seen a good deal of what they've done it doesn't mean it's going to translate to the big league level we've talked about that in the past but you can at least come out with an educated guess right like a hypothesis of what that player will be that's at least what you get there When it comes to these super young prospects now, we're grading guys on batting practice. Uh, And Jason Dominguez, who is the Yankee super prospect, just turned 18 years old. Uh, I can find a Jeff Passan article comparing him to Mickey Mantle and uh, name any incredible player he's, he's compared to him there. And one that's not really fair for him, even the Yankee scouting director said that. But he's this kid that's built like a linebacker, plus runner, switch hitter. It's, it's all of the things that you imagine the perfect baseball player would have. But there's a lot more that goes into it. Uh, I just had a chance to see him play. You could see all of those tools, but you could also see an 18-year-old playing professional baseball that had not gotten a lot of at-bats before. What is your take on the... I don't even know what the word is to describe it, but just the hype around these prospects because of media, because of all of these things that you know didn't really exist uh, when you were playing and coming up.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, you, there was no social media when I was coming up. Um, you know, there was no Instagram, there's no Twitter, um, there's no uh, avenues to hype these prospects. There's no scouting bureaus that that rank all the the prospects. You know but I think baseball America might've ranked in the top 30 or something like that. Just uh, minor league baseball players and what they thought they might do, but there's so much hyper-focus now on these draft picks and uh, their, their status in the top 100 MLB prospects. And every time you turn on Twitter, it's uh, number 54 does this today. And number 37 does yeah. this today. And this can't miss prospect number five, you know, the future of the organization is doing this today. And, you know, these kids can't help, but hear about all this stuff and follow. I'm sure they all look at it on Twitter. They're all Twitter followers and they, you know, it's good to hear about things about yourself, but at the same time, you know, it's almost impossible to live up to some of the hype that some of these kids get. And you're talking about high school players, a lot of them. So 50% of the draft in a normal year is high school prospects. And when you look at a kid that's Uh, you know, drafted number three overall, and he's a high school shortstop out of California. And now all of a sudden he's got $6 million in in his bank account and thrust into professional baseball, where he is now one of eight guys that have been the best player on every team they've ever played on. And he's now uh, facing the best pitching of every pitcher that every team they've ever played on. Sometimes they can't hack that. Like mentally, they're used to hitting four and 500 every single year well, now they go to pro ball and they're facing the best of the best and they're hitting 250. And some guys are like, they figure it out and they'll go back to that superstar status and start hitting the mid 300s and with power. But other guys, they're like, oh my God, I've never hit 250 in my life. I've never hit 220 in my life. And w- what's going on here? And it's the daily grind you play every single day. So we talk about dog days of August, just dog days of a professional baseball season when these kids come out of a 20 game high school season and now they're playing uh, a 140-game minor league season because there is no short-season A-ball anymore, it could be overwhelming. And a lot of these prospects, a lot of these super-talented, uber-talented kids uh, tend to fall off because they can't face the fact that they're going to they're gonna fail a lot more than they used to. Absolutely. And, and I do think about that a lot
0: because, like you said, to get to where they are, to get to where – even professional baseball in general, you have to dominate those lower levels. Very few guys just make it through. And now we see a little bit more of the, of the tools that sometimes get guys a chance, even though they don't produce. But still, it's, it's very rare compared to how many of these guys just mash their way through high school and college. One thing that I do think remains consistent, despite the change in technology, the way things are covered, accessibility, is that once you step between the lines, I don't think any of the players on the field, even today, care about your prospect ranking at that point, right? Like when when you're a starting pitcher on the bump, even in today's world, and this guy could be subscribed to Baseball America and Baseball Prospectus, I still don't think that pitcher would care if he's facing J.J. Boudet versus the 20th round pick in you know last year's draft that's also in that lineup.
1: Well, and- I don't know about that. So if I'm a pitcher on the mound and I've got this highly touted number, top 10 prospect in all of baseball, I'm going to get a lot more, much more satisfaction of striking that guy out than a guy that's not ranked at all, because there's so much emphasis put on these rankings and uh, they kind of put these kids on pedestals. Like oh, this is the next coming of whatever. If I'm a pitcher, I'm going to strike that guy out because that's going to make me look a lot better if I'm striking out this, you know, this uh, Uber prospect than uh, a nobody, so to speak. So that's something you think that that is almost nowadays in their head a little bit more because of that. Absolutely. And vice versa. I know that if you've got a a guy on the mound, that's a number one prospect in the organization or top 10 overall MLB, and I get some hits off him, I'm going to, that's a feather in my cap. I just took deep uh, one of the best prospects in all of baseball. This was
0: was an interesting uh, turn of the tables because I feel like that's almost the opposite of what I would expect you to say. And I felt like that's something I would say. (laughs) And we flipped flopped here because But they're
1: competitors, you know, they're competitors and they're going up against a guy that is highly touted. Like, this is the best of the best. Like, if I were to go up against Pedro Martinez, you know. Yeah, that's true. I'm getting a hit off Pedro Martinez. I'm going to relish that hit a little bit more than uh, the fourth guy coming out of the bullpen. I've talked to some players that they know everything about every player they're facing. And then I've talked
0: to some that literally don't even know what, you know, where to look. I will say most of
1: those are lying to you. (laughs) They want to say that they don't know anything. Yeah. With everything at their disposal nowadays, I guarantee you they know a lot more than most of them lead on. They're like, say, oh, I don't really follow it. Yes, they do.
0: Yeah, that is that is the classic knee-jerk answer, I feel like, is, oh, I don't follow that stuff. I don't pay attention to that stuff. But you don't really have a choice. It's As force-fed. you said, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's
1: force-fed down their throats. I mean, every stat you see nowadays and every metric is just blasted out to them every single day. There's no no way they just can't look at it. So for a player like Jason Dominguez, because being able to see
0: him again, I can see what there is to be excited about. I also see a guy with a lot of moving parts in his swing, a guy that swung and missed on 86 mile an hour fastballs and two straight at bats and and Cade. I mean, it doesn't mean he's doomed, but it definitely means he's got a long way to go. And yes, he just turned 18, but I, I have to imagine just the human component of this. I'm at the game. I'm hearing people yelling, Jason, 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 he hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't proved anything yet. And he knows that deep down too. But at the same time, his baseball card is going for tens of thousands of dollars. So like that's gotta be something that could weigh him down, right? Like I, I we don't know him obviously, but there's nothing, I don't know if we've seen really anything like this before. And you didn't really see that when you played, right? Like, I don't know if we can really understand the impact that it could have on a player, but I'm sure you can kind of imagine it a little bit better than myself or the average listener.
1: Well, especially when you've got a prospect coming up in the New York Yankees organization and he's touted and compared to Mickey Mantle. Are you kidding me? You know, Mickey Mantle is one of the greatest ballplayers of all time. And now you're saying this 18 year old kid reminds everybody of Mickey Mantle. I mean, what does that put on his shoulders, especially with that NY on his front of his Jersey? So, you know, he's only 18, so realistically, he's got three or four years in the minor leagues before he's even going to be considered uh, on his way or being called up to the big leagues or anything like that. So he's got to figure out mentally that, hey, when I step in between the lines, everything else shuts off. There's nothing else in between the lines than, than baseball. And I'm a baseball player. And when I go put on my uniform, and I get in between those two lines. Nothing else matters sometimes, especially now, right after he signs and right after he's got all this stuff hyped on him, he's probably out in the field saying, oh, my God, I I don't want to strike out because, you know, I've got all this hype on me. I don't want to make an error in the outfield because, oh, I'm going to be on Twitter tomorrow. I'm going to be, you know, they're going to say, oh, the top best prospect strikes out three times and makes an error. Yeah, everybody's micromanaging. It's mine because he's going to be pounded with it until he makes it to the big leagues. And if he doesn't make it to the big leagues, it's a complete bust. That's, that's the tough part. Well, for him, it's like, even if he goes up
0: there and has a decent career, he's a bust. Uh, It's, it's really at the point where he has to be a superstar or there's, there's no gain. If you look at the investment component of it for his baseball card relative to to the prices of other cards, uh, which I think is almost a microcosm of the general expectations, right? It's supply and demand. His baseball card is, going for the same amount that several all-stars are. So that's under the anticipation that he's going to be better than that. Uh, And all of those people that have invested money into this kid's card will lose money. If he's anything shy of an all-star, he could be a really good player and not make more than a couple all-star games and they will lose money on that investment. That to me is, is again, a microcosm of the entire prospect culture. I think that we all, feel like this guy's a can't miss guy he misses and then we totally forget about that see the next can't miss guy and then do it all over again and then just confirmation bias on the few guys that do fully reach their ceilings I I feel like we have a weird distorted reality on that when it comes to
1: fans in general I think so And, and when you think of the stats you know even first rounders first rounders so that's the number one choice for 30 teams in the big leagues. They pick one guy, one guy that they're going to draft and give millions of dollars to only 30% of those guys ever, ever even see a day in the big leagues, not necessarily stay there for 10 years and become all-stars, just see a day in the big leagues. That's 30%. So 70% are going to toil in the minors. And these are the, they've been identified as the best players for this organization in the entire country. That's who we're going to stick with this tab. And 70% of them won't even see a day in the big leagues. So when you look at some of the later round guys, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, not a whole lot of expectation piled on top of them. Well, they're a little bit more free to go out there and play the game and not have all this mental baggage put on them to succeed so quickly and have interviews all the time. And you don't have millions of dollars in the bank account. They just go play. A lot of times you see those guys reach the pinnacle a lot faster than those first rounders. Well, they
0: also know that they can struggle too, right? Because you mentioned you have an O for three game with three K's and you're Jason Dominguez. That's getting talked about, but absolutely. If you're an eighth round pick, you go 0 for three with three K's. No, eh, no, no one's really worried about it, but you have a big game. I, I think people that'll
1: catch people's attention. So it's I definitely you have to have like a big year almost or a big half a season when you're a later round pick to get on people's radar and like, Whoa, look at what this guy's doing all of a sudden. And now we're going to start following him. But up until that time, he knows how to be successful. He knows what he has to do with his routine to be successful at his level. So he's already, he's already on the roll. You know, he doesn't have to go back and, and like try to figure it out because he's got to figure it figured out. As a guy who nobody really expected anything from when you first came up
0: into professional baseball, when did you feel like people started to realize like, hey, this Conan guy, he could be a big leaguer.
1: Well, my double a season was like my breakout season. Um, I had two solid seasons in a ball. Um, I had a, a major arm issue after my first season, I had Tommy John surgery after my first, um, a ball season. So they sent me back to a ball just because it's down in Florida. It was warm weather. The training staff was there. They wanted to monitor me and I had almost the identical season as I did the first season. So when I got promoted to double a, that's when I really, you know, took off and, I was basically leading all of baseball and average and RBIs at the break of uh, my double-A season. So that's when I really got put on the radar. Um, and that's when I really started getting a lot of attention. But by that time, you know, I, I had kind of gotten my routine. I figured things out. I knew what uh, my game was like. I knew how to approach at bats. So when all this stuff started coming on with the press and everything like that, I'm like, all right, I could handle that because I knew when I got between the lines, I knew what to do. You had a chance to
0: prove it to yourself before the media hounded you, essentially, and before all that pressure was placed on you. And basically what you're saying is that's not always a liberty that some of these hyped up guys
1: have. They have no chance. I mean, they're got so much put on them before they even step foot on a professional field that they've got a lot to sort through in their mind before they can concentrate on baseball. The flip side, though, is that if you struggle, see ya.
0: Whereas a first rounder, they struggle, they're going to get a second chance, a third chance and a fourth chance. So it does go both ways. But I think it is really interesting to hear the psych- psychological side of it and then just the business side of it, where you know, you're know you going to be more expendable as a 40th round pick than uh, the first round guy that they put a couple million into, which uh, is always the unfortunate outcome of it as well, because you wonder how many guys maybe – could have had that explosive uh, explosive year that you had if they had one more chance or whatever it is. But uh, it's all about timing and a little bit of luck too. One more name on this th- on this topic before we go on to managers is Josh Booty, right? He was somebody that was very hyped up. And for him, it was also the story of it because he was a quarterback as well, right? And And a really good one. It was like, is he going to play football? Is he going to play baseball? What's the deal? Marlins gave him a massive contract relative to I believe what signing bonuses were typically back then. That's a guy that must've had a lot of pressure. I don't know if you were able to see a little bit of that firsthand, but I think he came up the year, the Marlins won in 03, right?
1: Yeah. He was up for a little bit. And uh, you know, I got to live that kind of through him, not through him, but I got to see it happen to him where, you know, you didn't see those guys very often where there could go to the NFL. They could come to major league baseball The Marlins offered him obviously enough to sway him to be a a baseball player. But, you know, he was just uh, and he finally, after he got done with baseball, he went back to football, didn't he? I think he tried to get on with uh, someone else or he might have gone back to college or he went to college or something like that. Crazy because he was so young. Um, But that was just it. You know, so much hype on. He was a good kid. Uh, I think it was was he from Texas or just a good natured kid that just uh, didn't. Deserve all the hype and couldn't handle the hype mentally. And I think it got to him. And eventually the Marlins just gave up. And he's, you know, he was a swing and miss guy big time. He had raw talent, like they, that's what they drafted, raw talent. Uh, But he probably should have stuck to to football from the very beginning. Well, that's the thing, too, is you have all these expectations placed on you in a sport
0: that you didn't even focus on. So it's like he wasn't even specifically focused on this sport. And still people are expecting you to be this, this next big thing. He did end up, you know, hanging around a little bit in football and made a little bit out of that as well, but just a really difficult situation too, is one of those two sport guys. We saw Kyler Murray go through it. I think Murray made the right decision. I think he would have been very similar where, because he was a Heisman candidate and also this explosive athlete that we almost blend the two together as if that implies that he's going to be good at baseball, but Murray struggled a majority of his collegiate career and then had a good junior season, uh, in the spring in the big 10. So it's like, there's a lot of situations like that, that I always do wonder, you know, which way these guys went, if they made the right decision. And it's funny how many football players, I don't think people realize how many NFL players failed at baseball first, and then went back to football players like Ricky Williams, even that people don't realize, like failed at baseball, went back to football and, and it worked out for them. Uh, Baseball is just a different animal with some of that stuff when it comes to being able to predict success. Uh, but going into managers now, because my manager take is one that I, I this is something that I just think over the years has become more evident to me. And I think there's exceptions to it in regards to certain managers that can really just make a difference from top to bottom. But overall, I generally feel like the manager and the importance of the manager in general is overemphasized that they don't have as much of an impact on wins and losses as it's made out to be in terms of hirings and firings. And, um, oh, you know, this guy's doing a great job now whenever they're on a winning streak. Is the manager doing a great job when they're on a winning streak? But no, then he's doing a bad job when they're on a losing streak. I think we put way too much good and bad credit on managers. I'm curious what your thought is on that.
1: Um, I'm going to go a little bit of both here. So when a manager gets hired to do uh, a job to be a manager of a major league team, he basically gets to bring in his staff to come assist him. He's got a bench coach, he's got a hitting coach, pitching coach, a bullpen coach. You know, he kind of assembles the people he wants around him to make the team successful. So managers are what they are. They're managers. So sometimes they are more about the clubhouse. They're more about selecting people that are going to help his team win than him actually affecting a win. So indirectly, I think they're more important than you might think. So if I've got a a manager that is a new hire that that hires an amazing outfield coach and I'm a subpar outfielder and that outfield coach makes me a much better outfielder, then that in turn makes the manager look better because I'm gonna perform better in the field and that's gonna attribute to wins. If a hitting coach, if I click with a hitting coach and he makes me a, a lot better hitter, Uh, my offense is going to go up and that's going to equate to more wins, not only for if I'm better, but the whole team's better. That makes the manager look better because he hired this hitting coach to come in and make his team better. When you look at the day-to-day managing of a game, I don't know. I mean, I think there are some managers that, that will take chances and go with their gut and really make decisions that might really impact a game. But I think most managers, Go by the book. Yep they're gonna they're gonna be matchups, guys. They're gonna be hey the computer like we always say the, the computer got me today because I'm hitting 120 off this guy. I'm not gonna make the starting lineup, even though I might be a 10 game hitting streak. I run into a boss saw pitcher that I've got no success against. He's gonna take me out of the lineup and put somebody in there that does have success. So they manage a lot by the book, as what we call it, is like numbers. Uh, when you got matchups and bullpens, traditionally left handers don't hit much. Uh, do not hit well off of left-handed pitching. So that's why you have left-handed relievers coming in. They don't specialize as much now because a guy has got to get three outs, but a guy would come in for one batter, one yep. batter, a lefty against lefty and get it out. And he's out of the game. That's by the book. So I think the manager's biggest manager's impact is in the clubhouse um, and how he manages those 25 personalities that have to come together as a team, because I'm a big team chemistry guy. And I think, I have looked to a manager before to create that chemistry in the clubhouse, to create that culture in the clubhouse that helps us play, to better, uh, play better as a team, and that translates to wins.
0: Well, that's something, too, that I want to mention because with Jack McKean in 03, that was exactly what happened in terms of the culture in the clubhouse. But before I get to that, I look at somebody like Gabe Kapler, and Gabe Kapler in Philadelphia was the scapegoat, right? And I'd watch games where some of the managerial decisions he'd make, I'd be like, okay, that's a little bit interesting. Uh, in the lineups and just th- the way he would decide to play guys, certain guys at certain times, whatever it may be at the same time. Now he is the, maybe one of the favorites to win manager of the year over in San Francisco. Nothing has really changed. He's still the same guy. He still does the same things mostly. Uh, but now the Giants are one of the best teams in baseball and Kapler went from how did this guy get a job to potentially manager of the year? I don't really see anything else being that fluid. Did Kapler just figure it out as a manager or is this Giants team just really good? And now we're attributing uh, like some sort of
1: figurehead. That's kind of how it looks to me. Well, I go back to that clubhouse. So the clubhouse in Philadelphia, maybe he just did not gel with, some of the star players that were on that team. Maybe they just butted heads. They didn't like the way he managed games. Like you said, he might have he might have been criticized by the players, uh, the way he managed the team. And when you have that kind of animosity between the manager and the team, I don't think there's ever going to be any success for that organization. They're not going to win when he goes over to San Francisco, maybe they buy in, maybe from day one in spring training, he has his speech at the beginning of the year and everyone's like, yes, I'm on board with him. I'm going to run through a wall for him. And he's able to manage those personalities a lot better because of the type of personality he has in that clubhouse. And it's more a more seasoned team over there in San Francisco than possibly he had in Philadelphia. And I think some of the veterans over there got behind him. They might even played with him because Gabe Kapler is yes. so such a young manager Uh, They might've known him better and say, yep, we're on board with this guy. Let's do it. And when you get everyone on the same page, that translates to wins. Another instance of this, because
0: I think that's definitely spot on, but David Ross, David Ross, there's probably nobody that gets along with his club better than David Ross. At the same time, they're going to probably finish on the worst stretch in baseball, because as we talked about in the last episode, They're starting guys that, you know, we haven't heard of or haven't heard about in years, but I could easily see a scenario where then they just fire David Ross because they lost 120 games, not because of the fact that Ross was so bad at even getting the clubhouse to be rallied around, but it was just because they had no talent on the field. So how often do you feel like the manager is also scapegoated with all of that in mind?
1: Often, often, I think, uh, A lot of times, when you construct a team that you think is going to do a lot better than they, you think is going to do a lot better, and they don't perform up to expectations, there's going to be a lot of finger pointing. So, who do you point fingers at? You know, the president of the team. You got the GM. You've got all the scouts. You got everyone that has constructed this team, and everybody in the organization is excited and they think, "Oh, we've got a playoff caliber team," and they underperform. Well, I think what's the easiest move to make? If you're going to save your job, I think the manager he's in charge. He's the field general. He's in charge of this clubhouse. He failed us. Let's get rid of him and get somebody else in there. David Ross is the most, uh, one of my favorite teammates of all time. I played with him when I was in Cincinnati and when he got that job in uh, Chicago, I was so happy for him And, and to have the instant success that he had, uh, the impact that he had on those players, um, was evident in my book and they had fun. They had a blast on the field doesn't happen all the time. Winning a World Series is really, really difficult. That's why there hasn't been a repeat World Series champion in a long, long time, because it's really hard to do. So, you know, David Ross, I think, will be a scapegoat. He'll probably, he might get fired. He might not. I don't know. But too often, it's pointed at the manager. And when you look at managers, I mean, look at Dusty Baker. How many times has he been fired? Yeah, it's it's funny, right? It's not going to work over there. You're not good enough to be a manager, but we'll take you. And it's just like okay. So, so teams are like they're in that 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 thing where they don't want to give a new guy the helm and and let him run their team, but they'll take a guy that just got fired because somebody else thought he was doing a terrible job over there. Yes, because he's got experience. He's got yes. experience managing, so he's going to come over to our our program and, and do a better job. It's like that whole thing where maybe he did do a terrible job over there maybe he lost the clubhouse but he comes to this new organization and he gets the clubhouse and everybody's behind him and it works that's why I get, guys get fired all the time that that almost reinforces
0: how case by case it is because what other job could you say yeah i got fired but it was just because of the culture there i didn't really the culture wasn't for me i'm going to be way better with you you're not going to get hired. You're just not, it's not going to happen. So it's interesting how in in baseball and other sports too, it happens in football all the time too. You see a coach get fired and then he lands somewhere else. And it's almost weird because you're looking at the team and you're saying, so you're basically saying, yeah, he wasn't good enough for the Mets, but he's good enough for us. It's just a weird, weird component to it. But a guy that just stepped in and really changed the culture uh, was Jack McKeon. He he really did in two thousand and three, and I want to hear a little bit about that, uh, as I'm sure people would love to hear. Because when he took over, the team was was awful, like absolutely no thought of potentially making the playoffs. Obviously, very talented team, but young and struggling. And then all of a sudden, everything changes.
1: Yeah, Jeff Torborg was the manager um, to start that year off with the Marlins, and uh Jack McKeon took over the helm in mid-May I think they were double digits down as far as in the loss column uh or as, as you know they're 10 12 games under 500 and they were one of the worst teams in baseball well from that moment on when Jack took over that team to the end of the season they had the best record in all of baseball and he was a 78 I think he was 78 years old when he took over that team he was ended up being the the oldest manager to ever win a world series and when you look at the simpleness of what Jack McKeon stood for, for those young guys, I think that's what, what resonated with them. He's like, he wanted you to go out there have fun. He wanted you to play hard. And the big thing, one of his big uh, credos was check your ego at the door (laughs) because we are a team. We're going to, I'm going to ask you to bunt. I'm going to, it doesn't matter where you are in the lineup. I might ask you to bunt every once in a while and check your ego because if I can get it down, I'm going to be helping the team. And I think that, is what created by the time I got there, you know, September 1st, I could feel it. I could feel that every layer in that lineup knew that if I don't get the job done, the guy behind me is going to get it done. And we're going to find a way to win this game because we never felt like we were out of any game. Doesn't matter if we were down by five in the ninth, we felt like we had a chance to win that game where a lot of times the ninth inning, you got closers coming on. We're out of this game. Just toss it in. Let's, let's look forward to tomorrow. But we fought to the very end all the time, uh, every game, and it was something special. You know, he created something special there that gave us confidence as players because he let you go out there and play. And you um, say
0: that was the most fun you ever had on a baseball field, right?
1: That that stretch there, the most fun I've ever had on a baseball field. The bench guys were it was he managed like an American League team, so he put his eight starters out there, and. They're going out there every single day. Unless somebody got hurt, you're playing every single day. He'd get his bench guys in there once every seven days, eight days, nine days, just to give them a couple of that bats here or there in case somebody got hurt and you might need them. But, you know, that was another reason why we were successful was everybody was healthy throughout the whole year. So, But our bench guys knew that role. They knew that Jack was going to manage like this. They supported that fact. They supported this team. They were so energetic and they, they brought so much levity to the dugout and they were hilarious. I mean, Andy Fox was screaming out movie lines, you know, all the time. Like, you know, he, Josh Beckett would come in after the top of the first inning top for, he'd stay at the top of the dugout. and was like, come on guys, let's get him some runs. He's pitching his ass off. <laughs> and we haven't even come to bat yet, you know, and it's just movie lines like that. And uh, God, it was just, it was so fun. And unfortunately, you know, that off season, we win the world series. You think, keep the team together. Let's do it again. They made a few minor changes or major changes. They brought in Carlos Delgado and um, you know, he was a major offensive force. Pudge Rodriguez was gone. But for me, they took away those bench guys because they had had some big league time and they were expensive. They didn't play hardly at all. They thought that they could bring in some other guys for much cheaper and to play the same role because it was still a Jack McKeon managed team. But that killed our vibe in the clubhouse, getting rid of those guys. And I thought that if we just kept that bench together, we would have done some special things. It's amazing. And that all ties back to the vibe, right? For for you
0: to say, no, it's not because we lost Pudge Rodriguez, the Hall of Fame catcher, which I'm sure didn't help. But you replaced the offense with with Carlos Delgado. It's not like you didn't get anybody there. That's one of the best first basemen of that time as well. And he had a couple great, great years with with the Marlins. But the importance of just – having those guys that you enjoy being around and it's a grind, right? 162 games. It's day in and day out. If, if you're looking forward, to interacting with your teammates, I could imagine that it it just translates into the field, whether you know it consciously or not. Uh, There's just got to be a general subconscious attitude uh, and cohesiveness there. And uh, that's a really interesting perspective that the bench can really make that much of a difference. And I, I totally believe it. When you look at how that team did that next season as well, were there any other areas that you felt like just weren't the same? Uh, was the pitching not quite there? You talk about the health in 03, where the, was the team not as healthy that next season beyond that with the bench situation, was there anything else that stood out to you as to why you couldn't run it back?
1: I thought we were, I thought we had a great team. We really had a great team. And, you know, we were in it uh, late in the season. We had an opportunity to win the wild card uh, both in 04 and Oh five. Um, but there were little things that, you know, cost us a few wins here or there. And I don't think there was any one thing like uh, this major player got hurt and um, really affected our chances. Uh, we still had pretty good pitching. You know, Dontrelle Willis uh, in 04, 05 won 22 games for yes. us. I mean, you know, we had Todd Jones and Armando Benitez had two of the best closer years I've ever seen. I mean, Armando Benitez saved 51 games, I believe, in 04, and Todd Jones was in the high 40s in 05 with minuscule ERAs, I mean, we had the back door of that bullpen was, was lights out. Uh, We still had Beckett and Pavano and Penny and uh, AJ Burnett was back being healthy. I mean, we had a great pitching staff. So that's what I can, the only thing I can really attribute it to is we didn't have that, that cohesiveness that the other two teams that I won on had. Two questions.
0: One, could Dontrell Willis have played in the big leagues, Rick Ankiel style as a hitter, Uh, based on what you saw
1: from what I saw. And I think the stats back it up. Yes. This guy could absolutely rake. I mean, (laughs) you know, he was, you know, the ninth place hitter. He was almost our DH uh, because when he pitched, the pitcher had to do some serious work to get around that pitcher spot. And he made, he affected the entire lineup. I, I believe it was a game against the Mets where he hit two home runs in one game, grand
0: slam and a two run shot. And I remember just watching that and saying, this guy's, this guy's unbelievable. Uh, and he was just so much fun to watch because he didn't give up any at bats, and those are the guys that you. It makes you almost wish that they keep they keep the pitchers hitting, but at the end of the day, it's so rare nowadays that it's not worth it. But yeah, I, I, I even asked, I even asked Dontrel that. I said, you know, I sent him a message one day and was like, why didn't you come back and hit? And he said, they hit it too hard nowadays. I would have gotten killed. Uh, I don't know if that's just a cop out answer, but. I think he was more than athletic enough to play the outfield and he definitely had the arm.
1: Oh yeah. He was a great uh, athlete, you know, and what a great personality, great energy Amazing. in the clubhouse. The guy was unbelievable. in the first day that I am uh, with the Marlins. You know, I come back from uh, Baltimore after that crazy trade deadline and we're standing, we're lined up in the front of the dugout for the national anthem and and he just—he's got so much energy. He just couldn't even stand still. He's like <laughs> moving around, you know. He's looking at the thing, and he keeps looking at me. You know, I don't even know the guy. I've never met him before that day. So he's looking at me, and he's like, "I'm like, dang." He's kind of staring me down. He looking at me, He goes, "Dang, damn man, I'm standing next to Mr. Marlin, Mr. Marlin, man. This is unbelievable, God." Oh, and he's just like, can't—he's <laughs> jumping out of his own skin, you know. This is just during the national anthem. He's not even pitching that day. So he was a fun to be around and a great energy and uh, loved to have him as a teammate. Genuine, right? Like just one so of those genuine. guys that just expels his emotions, just like says them. Uh, Enjoyed, like- the day. Enjoyed every game. Enjoyed every time he got to get out there and pitch.
0: Yeah, he was somebody that it was really hard for for me. Generally, I don't get attached to players like that, but it was hard for me to see him struggle down the stretch there. He had his peak. I mean, he had the Cy Young runner-up. He got the big contract. He did a lot of great things. He won a World Series, but it was really hard to see him fade out the way he did, because that was always one of my favorite players growing up. And a guy that you knew deserved the long career and the success and to go out on his own terms when unfortunately that wasn't the case, but his last year actually, where he was in Cincinnati, he did not pitch well, but he raked, I think he hit like <laughs> three fifty-seven and, and 70 at bats or something like that, like just out of this world. And that's why I always wondered, like, why didn't he hit one more question on the O3 team? So, we talk about big-name prospects, big-name picks, everything, those types of guys, and the hype around them. Not that much back then, but you know who your number one overall pick in the draft was, and that was Adrian Gonzalez. We talked a little bit about Ugo Therbina, but just on the baseball field, that was a good move to obviously bolster the bullpen. But at the time... You give up your number one overall pick if you're the Marlins. Do, do you remember some, some shock around that? Was there some backlash? That's not really something you see nowadays. You're not going to see a team trade the number one overall pick in the draft for a reliever. Just never.
1: Well, you know, being in the American League and, and not being in Florida and reading newspapers and things like that, I couldn't have told you who they drafted first round that year at all. And I, I had no idea who they traded away to get Ugi or Urbina, but their mindset at that time is we want to win and we want to win now. And we think we have the team to do it. And this guy is a critical piece that, you know, when you go to negotiations and you want a guy that badly, you're going to have to give something up. And, uh, you know, who is he with Texas before that? Yeah, I believe so. So Texas is like, Hey, we're going to shoot the moon here. We're going to ask for Adrian Gonzalez, our number one pick, and we're going to stick to it. And if you guys want him that badly enough, you're going to you're going to have to give it up. And they did. And, you know, he was an integral part of uh, our world championship run. Uh, he did exactly what they, they they traded him for is to shore up that bullpen, lock it down in the ninth inning, bring some confidence to that bullpen as well. And boom, you know, we're wearing a ring because of that.
0: Yeah, pretty wild. He, he was before that trade had a four one nine ERA. So, I mean, he was their closer. He had 26 saves, but you're giving up your number one overall pick for a guy with a 419 ERA. Well, it, it aged well because in the same amount of innings,
1: he pitched to a 141
0: ERA with the Marlins in 38 and a third. So something clicked. The Marlins saw that, but.
1: Well, the Marlins, you know, they're coming from Montreal too. So Oogie picked pitched in Montreal in front of these guys and they had him. They knew ah. what kind of personality he was uh, and what kind of confidence he brought to that pitching staff in the bullpen so they knew exactly what they were getting all-star in Montreal is a 24 year old uh pitching to
0: a 1-3 ERA so it, it's the little moves like that I mean for the Cubs it wasn't little but they gave up Glaber Torres who struggled now but uh, at the time and even through the first couple of years it seemed like a massive haul to get our oldest Chapman Chapman would then go back to the Yankees, but Chapman won them the first World Series in a million years. So it's those little moves like that. I don't think they win without Chapman in 16. And I don't know. I mean, what do you think? You guys would have had a lot more difficult of a time winning it without Urbina, right? I mean, having that you need that go to guy in the back end, which is why I think the White Sox are going to be a problem, by the way.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. You got, you got to have that, uh, that, that confidence in the back end and, you know, Braden Looper was the closer for most of the year and he started losing a little bit toward the end. And I, I think the the management lost confidence in him to be able to close out big games down the stretch. And they knew what they were getting in Urbina to come in and the supreme confidence that he had, they, it didn't matter to him what game he was pitching in. If it was probably the, the higher the stakes, the better he performed. So, uh, that's why they went out and got him. And when you look at the, the White Sox now, the I mean, their bullpen is absurd. Uh, it's basically a seven inning game. And if they can go into the seventh with a lead, it might be over.
0: Yeah. And they got Igor Jimenez back. I don't know if you've seen what he's done. He's only homered three times in like the three games he's been back. And then they just got Luis Robert back. They got Michael Kopik back and they add Kimbrel. Uh, to a bullpen that already had Liam Hendricks and also Ryan Tapera as well, who is uh, an underrated guy from the Cubs. Who, by the way, weird story: last year he was like I had like a three eight or four ERA as a reliever, got an MVP vote because somebody accidentally voted for him. So if you go <laughs> to Ryan Tapara's page, it says twenty fourth in MVP voting because of an accidental vote, that's and funny. that that's one that that is always funny to me, but. The last question, and we'll wrap it up here. Tony LaRussa, to tie in the manager and the bullpen thing, if there's one thing that Tony LaRussa always uh, gets credit for, it's his ability to manage a pitching staff. And now he has, arguably, from bullpen to rotation, the best staff, the best stable in baseball. Uh, do you think that he can really manage this pitching staff? to the next level in terms of utilizing it the perfect way in the postseason, even though the game has changed a bit since he last managed.
1: I think when you've got uh, that kind of arm and that kind of firepower uh, on your starting staff and in the bullpen, he's going to do a fantastic job. I think he structures, they have structure in his pitching staffs. They have, you know, they have uh plans for each guy. They know when they're gonna throw, they know how much they're gonna throw. And I think that gives them confidence, knowing, hey, today is my day. When I'm getting called, I'm I'm the one. I'm coming out of the bullpen first. And I think that's the way Larusa kind of informs his pitching staff, well, through his pitching coach, but you know, they set things up. And I think one of the biggest things about a manager. Uh, if they are going to affect the game is the way they manage their bullpen. When are they going to take that starter out and bring their guys in? Because they know the matchups coming up. And I think there's probably nobody better in the game than than Russa, as far as knowing on a given night where his healthy arms are, where he's going to insert them into the lineup and how they're going to win that ball
0: game. I think so too. And, and every time I watch this white Sox team, every time I think about them, I start thinking this looks like a world series team. It really does. You look top to bottom, I think I, I could see looking back in 10 years and saying, how did all those players play together? Even a little bit with the way we do with the O3 team. I, I look at that O3 team now and I'm like, geez, that was loaded with talent. I think well, we're already saying that with the White Sox, but I think in 10 years where these guys are scattered on different teams, we could look back on this squad and say, whoa, how did all those guys play together? Because you can make the case that there's a couple of Hall of Famers that could make their way off this team, as Kimbrel's probably well on his way to now. It's it's nuts. I still think this is going to be one of the best playoffs We've had in a while. I hope that's the case. I know that's when you really start ramping up the the viewership, Uh, but we've got some some interesting series coming up and some teams are fading. The Mets are fading. The Red Sox are fading a little bit. We're going to talk about that in the next episode because I want to get your thoughts on having seen a firsthand collapse with the Mets, which team you think might be the most susceptible to a collapse uh, down the stretch here because we're getting to that point of the season.
1: It's good at that time where, you know, if you're going to make a move, you got to make it now. If you're in the lead, you got to keep the lead. And it's going to be fun watching these teams like the Giants and the White Sox, if they can keep these leads, especially the Giants, I think that's going to be the most intriguing team to watch down the stretch just because of who's in their division. I mean, the Padres and the Dodgers, obviously powerhouses in that division. Uh, there's going to have three teams going to the playoffs from the same division. So it's going to be very interesting to see that, that unfold. Could the Mets collapse? Could the Red Sox collapse? Find out
0: on Thursday's episode of Outside the Box with Jeff Koenig. that'll do it for today's episode. We'll talk to you in a couple of days.